land is me Rock, water, animal, tree They are my song My beings here where I belong This land owns me From generations past to infinity Welcome to another episode of the Laurel Land Podcast, Nature Reparations Through an Indigenous Lens. My name is Sean Apo from the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. Today we are speaking with Lisa McMurray from the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation, but first I would like to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on the lands of the Gadigal and Wongal people and pay our respects to Elders past and present and thank them for letting us live and work on their lands. Lisa, welcome. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thank you. Um, I am Lisa McMurray. I am the Program Development Manager at Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. And um, I'm a non-Indigenous woman also living on Gadigal and Wongal country. So um, I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the place that I live and work and play on and eat on and um, enjoy Dance all the on. wonderful things that Marrickville <laughs> offers. Um, and my um, background, my ancestry from my great-grandparents um, come from many places throughout Europe, so Poland and Spain and Ireland and Scotland. And um, I also recognise the story of migrants and have great respect for people wanting to make a better life for themselves and for their next generations but I also realised that that came at great cost for Indigenous people. Um, and I found myself at an early age working in international development with a focus on the Pacific, mainly Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands but I've worked throughout other Pacific Island countries and always with NGOs and I think from that early uh, years, I was really um, focused and interested on the impacts of colonisation and, and particularly studying neo-colonial impacts, uh, which was, you know, always obvious to me throughout the Pacific. And then later on, I ended up having a few years up in Darwin and really transitioning into Aboriginal community development. And that's where I find myself now and, and constantly studying settler colonialism and, and the impacts of that. Um, to Indigenous people. So what have you seen has changed in that kind of work over the period that you've worked there? Um, I, my, my, my first impression would be not a lot, but that's not true. That's not true. You know, I think it's really easy to get overwhelmed and, and think that everything's quite light touch, but, you know, there's been some um, great changes. And I think even working with Aboriginal Carbon Foundation, I think we're often at the forefront of, of um, having some of these really challenging conversations and, you know, maybe the, the themes that we talk about are not very popular to non-Indigenous people. But I think I've noticed now there's much more um, awareness of, you know, being light touch and tokenistic and, and therefore, you know, I really start to see Indigenous voices um, being uh, heard. Um, and at the forefront of a lot of the conversation and, and you know, not just um, light touch anymore. I think that there is, yeah, that, that's, been, that's been a big change. You also did some study recently 
Do you want to talk a little bit about that as you roll your eyes? <laughs> yeah, no, it was amazing. Like it was, you know, one of the best things I've ever done, but also one of the hardest things I've ever done. So, yeah, I was really lucky to be um, involved in the Atlantic Fellows Program, which is an incredible um, act of, you know, enorm enormous generosity from a philanthropist, uh, Chuck Feeney, who started Duty Free. And he put pretty much all his money into these seven hubs around the world to really look at how to level up the playing field across all these different sectors. So there's um, economic equity, there's health equity, there's brain health equity, racial equity. And the program that I was involved in was run out of the University of Melbourne. And that's looking at um, social change, social equity in indigenous contexts in our region. So, um, my cohort, we were only the third year, it's now in its fifth, fifth year. Uh, we had 18 people in the cohort, so um, four non-Indigenous Australians, six Māori and um, eight Aboriginal people. And we came together, unfortunately it was in COVID, so a lot of it was online, but we had seven different modules, really trying to understand like the theoretical frameworks around settler colonialism and the impacts of that. But um, Indigenous leadership, Indigenous knowledges, Indigenous data collection and making sense of that. And, you know, I just learned so much. I have the most incredible um, friendships from that, fellowships and, you know, and it's given me a lot of hope, actually. And I, I think that's probably something else about what I see our role is in that um, we, we're just part of, you know, we're at this moment in time and we're part of this big movement that's been going for such a long time, all the great um, indigenous leaders and people who have been fighting these injustices for hundreds and hundreds of years and our moment of time, we just, you know, I often think of it as a tsunami, that's not a very good analogy, but you know, there's this big wave, there's this movement and we're just another, you know, part of that. And it gives me hope for the next couple of hundred years and really to see what what that would look like you know we won't be here but i think that the trajectory is positive yeah yeah and it looks like um you know through the work that we're doing as well like that opportunity is feeding into that into that wave isn't it so we're we're currently talking with a lot of different people around the country and even internationally as well so you're in um timor leste a couple of weeks ago talking with people over there as well so I really do feel like there are there are a lot of people who are having these conversations, mm. um, and I see part of our role too is to make sure that these conversations go on in governments, within corporates, uh, within other businesses as well. So, yeah, I definitely feel like that wave is coming. Uh, mm. Hopefully, it doesn't crash too hard. There's lots of waves. There's lots of waves. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Do you want to talk a little bit about your visit to Timor Leste? A sure. Of weeks ago yeah, well? and that was really exciting and. Another opportunity, and that came from partnerships with another NGO, Caritas Australia, DFAT, WWF. So I think, you know, exactly what you're saying, there's a lot of people who are doing really great work. And, you know, we like I, I like to always think that, you know, we're not the only people doing great work. There's lots of people doing great work and we can, you know, do even more great work when we come together. And that's a really nice consortium um, that we have through that program. But Essentially, we're looking at uh, opportunities for carbon farming projects in Timor-Leste. And the concern that we have is that the rush is on. The rush is on to um, claim uh, or to sequester carbon, abate carbon. Um, but we know that that really high integrity 
um, carbon credits in Australia are you know, in demand. And so I think there's a real push throughout the Indo-Pacific region to develop more carbon projects really for the benefit of offsetting um, Australian businesses. And I have a real concern with that. So we're lucky we're really in there, the beginning of this carbon industry in Timor-Leste to um, learn as much as we can, which we did over the last two weeks, met with so many different groups, met with government, um, ministries responsible for forestry and agriculture, uh, a great little organisation with one seed who has the only um, carbon project or one of two carbon projects existing in Timor-Leste, lots of NGOs, lots of movers and shakers um, in Timor to really influence what that looks like, a carbon industry in Timor, which should be a community development um, initiative. Like it, it really has to take into account um, people living in extreme poverty, a lot of people living $1 a day. How does carbon farming projects benefit, not just bringing in an income, but when you have a country that has a rate of malnutrition at 48%, then how do you know the tree planting projects actually um, make people healthier? And I guess when you were there as well, it was kind of like the background context um, that they probably didn't know about in uh, Timor Leste, but here, here we certainly knew about was that Four Corners program mm -hmm. about you know some of the carbon projects that were going on in PNG and how they weren't giving back to those communities and how you know, communities had to go back to those old businesses like logging and stuff like that mm. that they've been doing forever and a day. So I guess, you know, you guys going forward with that knowledge in the back of your mind and making sure that those kind of practices doesn't happen again, like that would have been some, you guys must have had some interesting conversations amongst yourselves while you were there. Well, interestingly, we had a really cram-packed agenda thanks to Mount Alberto, um, one of our partners, and we had one day off <laughs> and on that day off um, we sat in our beautiful balcony in Bukau and watched that video, the Four Corners um, episode and you know it, for me this is what this is all about you know we, we, we don't want that to happen in Timor and of course it's happening already in other places but um, it, it, of course this is another potential extractive industry for uh, people that want to do bad practice and exploit you know, people throughout the Indo-Pacific region. And that's exactly what's happened with fishing and logging and mining. And, but you know, there is a lot of awareness and it's awesome that that um, Four Corners program was aired. But at the same time, like, there's really great opportunity to, of course, not to do that and, and to expose people to that bad practice so that they're ready, you know, because they're there. They're already coming. Those businesses are already coming. We had one meeting with UNDP who said this was the third meeting they'd had in, you know, as many weeks with people interested in carbon farming projects and the other two were not NGOs. They were from Europe and they're purely about making money. So, you know, the more um, work we can do in exposing people to bad practice, but also to good practice, you know, that, that, that's sort of um, going to help inform the development of their own industry. So now I'm sitting here thinking about wedding cakes and I'm thinking about <laughs> what, we, what we do is about is the actual cake and then the carbon is, is the icing on top. You know, we've all heard that analogy a number of times and I'm sure Rowan, when he hears this, will have a good giggle. So. Um, Tell me about the core benefits verifications framework. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we had a um, funding uh, grant 
a few years ago now from the Queensland Government to really look at how do we measure those core benefits because particularly at the time and even more so now, uh, we know that there's a lot of claims made around carbon projects and they're not always um, true. Um, I think in the case of, or I know in the case of Indigenous projects, they are true. You know, they're amazing outcomes from the really great Indigenous projects and high integrity projects. And um, so the, the, the purpose of the core benefits framework was really to measure those beyond carbon abatement outcomes. And, and we had a clean slate to do that. And excitingly, we took a different approach. I think most people wanted us to develop what always gets developed, you know, like reams and reams of um, paper with lots of different process and everything. And we, we know Indigenous people have been researched to death. And we said, no, nah, we're not going to do that. And some of the communities we had relationships with at the time and still today have 20 research projects on the go. And go to any one of those uh, ranger offices and pull open a filing cabinet and you'll find bucket loads of you know, reports and data collection and everything else. So we said we're not going to create another layer of complexity in data collection and make people collect more information because it's already there. And so you know, it was really exciting that we could take a step back and do what we thought would work well. And the other thing about um, data collection or impact measurement is that it's often about the change that a donor is making. You know, the donor knows what they're interested in and they want to measure what their um, funding enables and fair enough. But we said, look, that's fine. But really for people on the ground, we want to know what's most important to them. So it's place-based, it's mob-based, and also, you know, every, like every um, Indigenous group will have a different, and every project will have different outcomes. And it'll be different on the day too, perhaps, to, you know, who, who's involved in that measurement. And um, so, yeah, we've done things differently, but not differently to how, you know, Indigenous research methodology looks. It's very much from an Indigenous research methodology framework. We did look at a lot of the international development standards as well, you know, which is pretty good practice. But I mean, the key principles of our project or um, the key principles of our framework are data sovereignty. So pretty much, you know, anything that gets discussed or declared has a whole lot of permissions. Um, we have an app that also controls that. So anything that gets shared publicly has gone through all the right permissions checks. Um, we also use a peer-to-peer -peer approach, so we bring people from one part of the country to come and visit another mob. They spend a whole week together. You know, it's not like touch. The first day is just hanging out and getting to know each other and going and visiting, you know, different places of significance or having a barbecue or a picnic or, you know, whatever that is, but it's relationship building. And then we work through a series of different processes to understand like what is most important to people um, from that community around their, their um, carbon project. The other thing we've done, like so ownership is obviously, and capacity building is, is key. Um, instead of, you know, we could have done, like bring any, you know, consultant from down south with a clipboard, <laughs> um, but we, we don't want to do that. You know, we want to build capacity of people to also be measuring, um, impact to you know be experts in uh, evaluation and verification so I think that's something that Aboriginal Carbon Foundation does really well is that every bit of work we do we're looking at an angle to you know build the capacity of Indigenous people to maybe if people aren't um, 
doing that, you know, something now, but we like we're always looking towards the future and how can Indigenous people really be controlling different processes. The other key element of that framework is we have no indicators. And so that was a bit of a headache, you know, for we, we did get the process peer reviewed and we sent it out to lots of people and, you know, most people were sort of struggling with the fact that it has no indicators. But that, you know, again, we're not like, we're not dictating what change looks like or what's important. Like we could have easily come up with all these different domains and, but you know, whacked a bunch of indicators under each one. But again, they're kind of meaningless. You know, you also have to have really high levels of English literacy. And, you know, we want this to be able to be used everywhere where people might speak English as a fourth language. So, you know, kind of just cobbling together a few words in a, in a little pithy sentence is kind of meaningless. So um, we have no indicators, but we use triangulation. So we've got that sexy, you know, monitoring and evaluation word in there. I love that word, triangulation. So essentially, if something comes up, for example, um, one of the um, outcomes of the carbon project in Kawanyama is bringing t together Western and Indigenous scientists. Like, that's a great outcome. So then, okay, what's the data around that? You know, how do we know that that's real, you know? Um, I mean, we should be able to trust people that that's real anyway, but, you know, how do we know that that's real? We can open up filing cabinets and there's reports and there are pictures of people working together over many years. Um, so that's triangulation, like being able to draw on existing data um, to, to make sure that those claims are valid. I've been involved in a couple of opportunities when we've presented this to Aboriginal people and groups and rangers. And um, I've seen how it works. And I, and I really like the way that people grow throughout those couple of days. They become more confident because we're talking about things that are meaningful to them and things that resonate with them. But to be able to develop that, you must have drawn on a lot of really interesting concepts. And I guess there was probably a lot of ideas from your experience about what not to do. Mm. But how, what did you draw on to work out what you were going to focus on? Mm. I think um, strength-based methodologies is something that you know has been um, intrinsic in my work for a long time because I know the power of the deficits language and its intention to disempower people. So I think at the heart of all of this work is, you know, strength-based lens. And um, so looking, you know, what people are most proud about. And I think, you know, when we do that training, we have, we have the first days a bit around kind of concepts and theory and Aboriginal ownership. And, you know, we talk about like, when were you really proud about something? And, you know, what, was, what were the ingredients in that? Like what was happening? Um, for you to feel so proud about stuff. And I mean, it's just stuff that we all do, you know, we all know like what makes us happy and, you know, when we're in control and, and what are the elements and what's happening in our life when something works. So that, you know, we're just trying to take away a lot of that um, jargon and, um, you know, sort of top-down dogma and just, and, and make people feel proud about their amazing work and their commitments and, you know, their resilience and, yeah, so we, that's embedded through it. But there's also a lot of fun. You know, we like to have a lot of fun. And I mean, when we did the verification training with Bunya Mountains, there were minties on the verification trees. It was a minty tree. So, you know, we have a lot of fun. And we, I think the other thing we do well is like we make space to actually talk through things. Like the curriculum, the, you know, we, we 
the full course, not just the core benefits, but our carbon farming, Aboriginal carbon farming, we normally spread it out over five days. It might not, it doesn't go nine to five, but we spread it out over five days so that we're not exhausted. But also, you know, we don't want to rush through anything. And when we do the identification of the core benefits and we use cards, and what I love about that, you know, and when we were developing that, we were like, oh, you know, how's this going to work? Is it a bit naff or, you know, but it actually is amazing because you and I can pick up the same card and have a totally different interpretation. And I often think about, you know, for me, that's like no one is colonizing our minds. You know, no one is dictating how we have to interpret that card. So you can interpret it one way, I'll interpret it another way. But also I feel when we do that process, like it can take hours. You know, and like you were there in Bunya Mountains, like people were talking pretty heartfelt stuff, you know, and it's about, you know, being back on country or being, being removed from country and, and coming back to country and that conversation, no one's, you know, rushing that. Like everyone gets to talk until they've said enough. Um, so I think slowing things down, you know, making sure that there's time for fun and relationship building is really important. Absolutely, yeah, they are very engaging workshops and uh, I think I said this on a previous podcast, from being involved in a lot of workshops and that include um, Indigenous people as participants in those workshops, um, sometimes people just switch off because they either don't want to speak or what's being spoken about isn't really relevant to them, mm. but this one, everyone you know, wants to speak and like you say, they will speak until they've finished speaking, which is another amazing thing that doesn't often happen. And I remember going to the training in Kaunyama quite a few years ago now and, you know, some of the older um, men coming up to me afterwards and, and were coming up to us and saying, you know, we've been to so many courses, we've had so many courses, but it's really, like often a lot of that, those, um, the way it's taught, you know, doesn't resonate with us. And this was really fun. And I mean, we play music and we play country and Western music, you know, I mean. <laughs> that might turn some <laughs> Sometimes reggae. <laughs> yeah. so, so why are core benefits important? Because that's Actually, why. Actually, sorry, first, sorry okay. what, are, what are some of the core okay. benefits? Okay, yep. So I think core benefits are really why people love this work. You know, why, like core benefits of being back on country. Core benefits are repairing country. They're making sure that the significant plant species, animal species that have always been there can return. Um, it's about you know employment. Um, we know one of the communities we're working with, Western Yalangi, their carbon projects really enable this growth of a ranger team. You know there wasn't a ranger team before. Now they've got twelve people um, through that work and being able to use the carbon projects as a launching pad for other things. So, you know, being able to get different grants, like working on country grants, or seeing now that being back on country, the potential to even, you know, utilize your country for other enterprises. Um, so the confidence that I think people get from, you know, these projects too. And I know how we work is that we really want to expose people to the whole infrastructure of carbon farming, so it's not about just being on the ground putting in a burn, which is great, but we also want people to understand the whole mechanism behind it. So I think, you know, it's just sort of like some, you know, some communities, as we know, really remote, like at Timor, people don't have Wi-Fi. So how do you know about this whole industry of carbon farming unless you come and see it and feel it and meet with people and, you know, get a sense of it firsthand? And we try to do that. Um, but I think that sort of, you know, stimulates 
interest and and you through those many conversations you see how people are using their carbon farming projects f to do other things as well so the core benefits obviously you know you can break them into different domains so environmental um, social cultural economic political spiritual you know they're really for me they're the heart of this work and a byproduct of that is oh great we can make some income to do more of this great work yeah well i guess you know we we often um when we're having conversations with lots of other people within the industry you know the the, the common language about what the sort of minimum standard is around co-benefits mm. what's the difference between co-benefits and core benefits well i think that's the thing, the core benefits are really why people want to do this work. You know, I mean, if you removed that income piece, people would want to do this work. You know, if you have an opportunity to bring people, we'll be back on country. Like in some of the groups we work with haven't been on country. And this is, you know, an opportunity to get back on country. And um, you would do that regardless of an income attached to that. So I think, you know, the core benefits is really like the life and soul of, I mean, I'm talking on behalf of Indigenous people. I imagine this is the life and soul of why people would want to be back on country. And then, great, you can make an income out of it. But the co-benefits is the other way, you know, seeing it the other way around, like the carbon project is actually the, you know, heartbeat of a pro project. And then the co-benefits are like, oh, look, you also get this great stuff. But that's it's in reverse for you know the people we work with definitely what do you think some of our buyers of of the carbon credits from these projects why are they interested in buying these carbon credits and and how does the core benefits feed into that yeah we've got some really good buyers like really um companies that are really operating with integrity and i think that the high-end, high-integrity projects that we work with, they, I want to say tick boxes, but they're more than tick, ticking boxes for these companies because they are, you know, taking this stuff seriously. So I think many of the companies we work with have reconciliation action plans and a lot of them have elevate reconciliation, reconciliation action plans, so that's the highest level. Uh, they're obviously meeting their carbon um, footprint offsetting. Um, their corporate social responsibility is also being addressed um, and most of those companies are also working towards the sustainable development goals of which these projects meet. I think we've measured you know, 14 out of the 17. You could probably stretch it to say that they're meeting all of those um, SDGs. And a lot of the companies too, they, they want to look for other opportunities. They don't want to just you know, buy carbon credits and put it on their annual report. They also have, many of our companies have actually offered, you know, they want to do more than that. They either want to partner with us in longer term arrangements or what, how can they um, have a relationship with the, you know, the carbon producers and that's the exciting piece. Like, we, you know, we probably haven't been able to do that a lot because of COVID, but now that, you know, those restrictions are easing again, I think there's going to be a real opportunity for um, companies that, you know, may have a lot of really great skills that um, part, the carbon farmers could learn from, but also the other way around. Like, you know, I think this sort of skills transfer is, you know, can be seen as a bit like white saviory, and we don't want to do that, but we want to be able to build genuine reconciliation and mutual skills.
skills transfer between both groups would be pretty exciting. Yeah, I think um, having spoken with and just listened to a lot of the conversations about uh, purchases and carbon offsetting at, at the moment, what is happening inside a lot of these companies is, yes, there's a lot of reputational and brand risk if they're buying low integrity um, carbon credits, but within their companies, like their workers want to know that they're working for a company that is making a, a, a difference, not just to the, to the climate, but to our country as a, as a um, whole. So, you know, they want to understand, well, what are our purchases? What are our um, responsibilities? How, how are we making differences? And, and having this offsetting structure that also has social, cultural and environmental impacts is something that those people are really aware of and that they're really proud of. Mm. And that's what makes me excited too, because I really think that we're just at the beginning. You know, we we know that 54% of the country is actually, you know, managed or Indigenous people have rights over that land tenure. But, you know, the, the scope really to repair land and, you know, we're starting to reframe carbon farming really as, as land repair. I think, you know, I'd love to see where this goes and, you know, hopefully I'll live long enough <laughs> to be able to see some really great um, scaling of, you know, Indigenous land ownership practice throughout the whole country. There's amazing stuff we know, you know, happening up north, but how exciting to think that this is really going to scale throughout the whole country. Absolutely. How are core benefits collected? Well, yes, that's really interesting too. And we've built an app. Um, around that which will house all of the data collected I call it data but you know it's information um, so we go through we, we developed the process over two years I was talking a bit about that before lots of um, consultation learning from other ways of doing things lots of talking with different people but essentially our model of rigor is um, asking the right questions in the to the right people in the right way and that actual um, blueprint for how you do that gets worked out during a verification event. So you have the verifiers working with the carbon farmers to understand uh, who, what are the right questions. So first of all, determining what is most significant about this carbon project in terms of the core benefits. And we use a series of picture cards. I think we have about 100 or so picture cards. They're all connected to the carbon projects. That takes a few hours. People can choose one or two cards and we say, just choose something that really you know, speaks to your heart. Like what jumps out at you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? You know, what do you love about this work? And you know, people will walk around and we say, just choose one card or choose two. Sometimes someone will have 10 cards. And then people will talk about what's happening in that card and then why they chose it, why do they think it's so important. So, and then the process for choosing two or three cards to actually take a deeper dive into, um, we then you know, put those cards up on the wall and there's a lot of conversation and every group will do it differently. You know, they can rank if they want to. They, you know, there's all those materials there, sticky dots, whatever. Um, but essentially, you know, the way I've seen it happen and we've done it now six times, uh, six or seven times is people just talk about it you know and there'll be you know there'll be senior key people that are referred to and and they'll but I love too that the young people they they get made to speak up you know often like senior people older people are really 
making those young people speak up who always feel a bit shame and a bit shy but can, every single time those young people they're pointed at and they're like you need to speak up you know so I find that really interesting and oh look, it's got goose, goose pumps <laughs> anyway um, so they distill the, all those cards and sometimes there can be you know like 20 cards down to make two or three and then we do we then create a verification tree Again, you know, when we were developing this, it was a bit like, oh, do people want to draw a tree? Or, But, oh, my goodness, it's just been awesome. You know, because there's so many artists. Um, we're all artists, you know? We're all artists, and this is creativity's been beaten out of us. And I think when we are given, like, a whole lot of glitter pens and everything else, we tend <laughs> to just crazy. go crazy. And, you know, we so pe the first process is just drawing, like drawing a tree. And I always love the old men who are playing with the glitter pens and... Someone will be making this incredible spider with a pink fluffy bum, you know, <laughs> like that lives in the tree. And yeah, so that, you know, the trees get drawn first and then we work through these series um, of, of processes that are, you know, they're text light, they're, they're picture based, they're fun um, and they're serious. You know, they're talking about what do you want to know about that core benefit? What are the sorts of questions that you might ask about that? Who do you talk to? You know, who are the key people that we need to talk to? And that's the other thing, we're there for a week. So it's not like, oh my God, we've got to talk to this person, they're heading out tomorrow. And you know, we, like, we take people out to the beach and we fish and we talk in the troopy and we do, you know, it's not just in an interview set, it's not in an interview setting. It's you know where people feel most comfortable, and we've said we've always said you know data collection happens in the back of the troopy. Um, so then we're just having conversations about you know why are these core benefits so important, and then um, what other data might support that. So we talked about triangulation. What are, what other data is there? And then we make sense of all of that, you know, so a few days are around data collection and then a day is kind of coming back into maybe, you know, the range of um, office and sort of unpacking everything we've heard and um, making sense of that. And then finally, and we tried to build the creation of a short video into that week, but it's just too much, too ambitious. But we, our report is a visual report. So we don't make, you know, we, people then write up a written report that you know a no one will read b you know loses all of that richness so it's a visual report and we also have cameras and things that we encourage anyone to use you know and i remember many many years ago um coming across a video project like 20 years ago where you know cameras were given to kids in a community and i and like i've seen this happen in other projects as well in the solomons like we gave ca cameras to people during the ethnic crisis and you know, so the, the um, authenticity that comes back from that sort of reporting, you know. Um, and another Solomon Island uh, amazing man, he's passed away now, Joining Tatua, he used to always say, you know, like whoever holds the purse holds the power, but I used to say, whoever holds the camera, you know, holds the power. Exactly. And so anyway, so we end up with, you know, a lot of shaky footage. <laughs> A lot of like muffled um, recording, but it doesn't matter, you know, it's real, it's authentic, it's authentic. And then, so we can't create a visual report in the time that we have, but we can create a storyboard. So now we've built in a storyboard, you know, what are the key pieces of that um, report that people would like to include, you know, what are the important um, pictures or location shots. And so we take a whole lot of location shots and then, um, 
give that to you know an indigenous filmmaker to put together and then that video goes back to um, people who've got the cultural authority to approve that some you know it did take us a year and a half to do that last time um, and then once that's those permissions have been given then we can use that footage so you know it's a process we know that the measurement of core benefits is really going to take off you know we've had that little bit of time thanks to covid but now it's coming and you know and we know we're hoping to resource that internally to really scale that measurement and um, i'm just excited to see what amazing videos come out of that and people feel great like it's a great process you know the end we have a celebration barbecue it's a celebration and that's the difference between this work it's not an audit it's not looking if people are telling the truth or you know it's a celebration um, we start with a smoking ceremony you know welcome a barbecue it's all great work great news stories two different mobs coming together you know like indigenous survival resilience excellence it's all in there it's beautiful I think that two different mobs coming together is something that's really unique because that's the way we used to work and that's the way I've seen it work with other cultures as well. So when I was involved in that training last year with some of the Pacific Island nations and talking to them about core benefits, you know, that was, um, that's the way that we worked for thousands and thousands mm. of years. We used to sit down and talk with each other. What I found was really striking in talking to them was like they were really confronted by it. They were, they were, they didn't feel like they could talk about social impacts or cultural impacts as if that would be relevant to them, to their project. And I'm saying to them, this is it. This is the whole project. Yeah. What do you get out of it afterwards in carbon credits? That's, that's just icing. Is. So, you know, but because they haven't been allowed mm. to think in those terms before, it was really, really difficult for them to sort of process that. Uh, I guess that's why these workshops take so long. It takes people a little bit of while to sort of change the way that their minds have thought about their opportunities or what's possible for them. Um, and yeah, I've seen how this has made a big difference. Mm. And also um, bringing people from Timor in July to visit indigenous carbon farmers. And you know, even um, yesterday having a conversation with another group who are doing work in Vanuatu, like that's what we want to do. You know, we want to start strengthening like the regional um, networks and for exactly that reason, you know, because I mean, people have been working together for a long time and I think it's really sad that and telling of, you know, kind of the focus of, you know, Western ide ideology that you don't see like the essence of life, relationships and connections as important, you know. So that's where all of us benefit from Indigenous people. And like as another friend of mine um, from New Zealand, a Maori woman from New Zealand always says, and I've taken up to <laughs> saying this, colonisation is terrible for everyone. So, yeah. Well, that sounds like a good place to end. So thank you very much. I know that I had to drag you kicking and screaming to do this, but thank you very much for uh, having a conversation today. Thank you. Can I go now? This land is mine. This land is me. This land is mine. This land owns me. This land is mine. This 
land is me They won't take it away They won't take it 